All right. Ready? Let's uh, say a prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, bless us and your word that hearing we might bear the fruit of your love. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to get started with Mark chapter 7 today, although, um, what do, you, do you have anything left over from Mark chapter 6? Anything we need to talk about yet? What happened in Mark chapter 6? Do you remember? John was beheaded. Yeah. Woo. That's a... Two banquets. Thank you. Yes, that's right. Two banquets. You get a taste for Mark's personality, the, his style of writing. It used to be, I mean, it used to be not so long ago that scholars who are not always to be trusted about these things, um, scholars thought that Mark was kind of a primitive gospel, like that Mark just gathered together little snippets of things that Jesus said and, you know, unthinkingly pasted them together. It's so clearly not true, right? It's, I mean, he's crafted the story very carefully and he's doing something very particular trying to show you the contrast in Mark chapter 6 between the kind of banquet Jesus serves and the kind of banquet that King Herod serves. But notice also, I mean, I think this is striking, the way that the story of John the Baptist dying is sandwiched. We had another Markin sandwich um, between Jesus sending out the disciples and the disciples coming back uh, and hearing, and Jesus hears all about what they've done. In the meantime, we hear about how things went for another fellow who was doing doing the work of Jesus. Um, we were, I, let me show you this map here real quick. Um, you have it on your last, last page of your handout there. So the feeding of the 5,000, this is really blurry now when I zoom in. in. Okay, the feeding of the 5,000 was in Capernaum, which you see at the top, all right, dried in blue. There you go. And then after the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples get in the boat to go with Jesus to Bethsaida, right over there. Um, so they're still on the north. This is important because the feeding of the 5,000 happens in uh, Galilean territory among Jews. Later, we get the story of the feeding of the 4,000, which happens, not surprisingly, in Gentile territory. You know, it's another, it's another thing. Some scholars look at the book and they say, we've got these two feeding narratives, these two stories of Jesus feeding crowds and crowds of people. Mark was just kind of, he didn't do a good job of editing. He told the same story twice. What a silly guy. <laughs> it's just, I mean, he tells you the same story twice, and that happens in different places, and, and then, in fact, Jesus uses the fact that he did, he did this miracle twice to teach the disciples. He says later, don't you remember I fed the 5,000? And then, because you didn't get it the first time, you were confused about the loaves, I did it a second time to convince you about the loaves. And uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty striking, and I think you see that a lot as we go through Mark here, just how... Um, deliberate Mark is in telling the story. Anyway, what else do you have about Mark chapter 6? What else happened in Mark chapter 6? Anything we should observe before we go to... Jesus walked on water. Right. They were scared it was a ghost. What else, what else is strange about that story? I mean, Jesus walking on water doesn't really surprise us anymore. We've heard that story a whole bunch of times, but there are some things that I, I find perennially surprising about these stories. What's what a, it's like he doesn't stop it. He's yeah. just going to keep going. That's right. It's like when, again, when uh, Jesus is on the road, the Emmaus road with the disciples after he's resurrected, and they're stopping in the town, and he's going to keep going. So that the, the story actually doesn't take place unless 
those disciples compel him to stay with them. I was really, he's meaning to do something different. He's on his way to do something different. And he's, he sees that, remember this paradigm, he sees their need and has, is moved to compassion. So he sees and has to act. Uh, that principle, the notion that Jesus, when he sees need and has to act, that he sees need and is moved to compassion, that's kind of challenged in Mark chapter 7 a little bit. So pay attention for that, um, when, especially when you, when you listen to the story told. What else? Anything else about Mark chapter 6? Krista? Because the lesson said, you know, because Jesus is always in front of us. That's right. Yeah. I just, um, yeah. in this boat, was incident. That's right. The, yeah, and in, in the next chapter, in Mark chapter 8, we get this really stark pronunciation that Jesus says to Peter. Get behind me, right? Get behind me. If anybody, so first of all, if anybody would come after me, let him take, off, take up his cross, right? And then he says to Peter, get behind me. Um, that's the right place for us to be. Yes, Donna. I have a question. Uh, what was Jesus trying to teach them about the loaves that they didn't understand? It's a good question. Um, it is confu- it's, it's a mystery. Um, it's a mystery in, in its presentation even. Take a look at it here. Um, they were astonished that it was him. That's right. Chapter 6, verse 51. If you have your Bibles open here, I'll read it to you. I only gave you a 7 on the page there. He got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. Um, so what are the possibilities? What might they not have understood? What are the things they might have been confused about? Jesus was able to do this. Can he? And they were telling him what to do. That's right. They thought better than he did. That's right. Here, we, you know, we'll send the crowds away. Or, here, we've got some loaves and some fish. But Jesus takes care of the whole thing, right? So in some sense, you know, one, one really strong possibility is that they just don't, they, they think that this wasn't really as spectacular as it was, you know? That um, Jesus had a secret supply of bread around the corner, you know? It, you know, under the, under the bushes, he got all this bread, right? Um, so, I mean, there's that possibility. But that actually... Is, is, a, is a symptom of a bigger problem, their bigger misunderstanding, their hardness of heart, right? Because the, the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah who's been promised, um, they're willing to acknowledge that as long as it agrees, as long as it looks like what they expect it to look like. Um, but they don't understand, what they don't understand all along the way is that uh, Jesus is shaping their expectations, right? That he's uh, confounding them, right? That they, need to, that they need to reset. And by the time they get to the end of the gospel, which is going to be true for us as well, by the time we get to the end of the gospel, you're going to be in this position where you actually you have to just go back to the beginning and start over again. Because everything that you've learned along the way, all the things you didn't understand or that you were confused about, the only place you're going to get the answers is by going back to the beginning again. Jesus will talk more about the loaves um, as we go as we go on a bit later in the story. So watch so watch for that. What else do you have? Anything else, Krista? Um, I just I, I just was thinking perhaps the disciples they were a little bit disappointed. They want to be with Jesus by himself, by themselves, and there's a crowd coming. Yeah, that's just interesting. Um, he, and he's regularly trying to get them to come away with him to a desolate place and. They get interrupted, yeah, by all these needy people, right? 
Um, and that, I mean, that's what, another thing that the disciples regularly fail to understand. <laughs> um, they f- regularly fail to understand that because they are being sent by Jesus, their job is to do what he does, which is to see need and show compassion. Okay? Um, th- we, it, we hear this, this example that we, we recite it every time we have a baptism this, from the Gospel of Mark when Jesus says, when the disciples rebuke the children for coming to Jesus, and he says, let the little children come to me. And every time I say it, every time I say it, he says, um, unless you receive the, li- the, the kingdom of God as a little child, you will by no means enter it. Um, I always wonder what that, how that sounds to, to people hearing. Because uh, on the one hand, of course, you know, especially when we're baptizing infants, it might sound like unless you got baptized as an, as an infant, unless you received the kingdom of God as a, you know, when you were a little child, you will by no means enter it, which of course is not, which is not the case. But that might in fact be the easier option because it requires from grown-ups that you become like little children, um, which is, you know, in the, the disciples... Jesus regularly, in, in John, he calls them his little children, his little ones. Um, and they, they, don't want to be, they don't want to be children. Okay, I'm going on and on. Let's listen to Alec McCowan here. Um, chapter 7, Mark chapter 7. Get to the right spot. Ready? What do you, uh, what do you notice? Anything stand out to you? Yes, Carol. Uh, struck by the last last five words. Yeah. He makes all things well. Mm-hmm. Reminds me of Jesus. Oh sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and you know it's interesting that everybody observing Jesus, everybody observing Jesus, has to conclude that he does things well, right? That he succeeds at what he sets himself to and is good. The outcome is always good. Yeah. What else? Marilyn. I am struck by how the Pharisees have all this criticism of Jesus. Yes. Those common people, the one who need the devil cast out in the hearing and so on, they know who he is. They know who to go to, to, go to him. That's right. The Pharisees' ideas to just yeah. try to get him in any way. That's right. So this is, this is uh, a great observation. What is the problem with the Pharisees? If you can, so they, they do love power. Um, and that, say that again? Pride. Pride, power and pride. These are great uh, words to describe what they're after. And jealousy. Um, good. What are they jealous of? The fact that Jesus draws Christ. Okay. The fact that he can heal. The fact that Right. So, what is what is their? How do they obtain power? How do they bolster their pride? And what you know? What do they do to inf- to exact revenge because of their jealousy? What are the, what what's their method? They throw the law back. Okay. Good. So they use the law. Now we have to be really more de- really descriptive about this. What do they mean when they're talking about the law? Their laws, right? What's the, what's the key word that you heard over and over again? Traditions. Okay. Now, this is important because it's easy to make a caricature of the Pharisees and say they are legalists. Being a legalist, uh, if, by, if by saying 
that somebody's a legalist, you mean they um, uphold laws that aren't just or that they apply laws unfairly, right? They're hypocritical. Then that's a, that's a fair, that's a good assessment. But if, uh, if, you use, if you talk about legalism and you mean just simply having laws, that's not a bad thing, right? The law is good. The law of God is good and wise, as the old hymn goes. So, the, so this connection to their traditions is, is really important. Um, the, the word that describes traditions, or the word that's translated as traditions, has to do with things being handed down, um, which, is, which is really interesting. There's this ambiguity that occurs. So the word traditions shows up all over the place. Let's see here. A couple of important places. Verse 5, your disciples do not walk according to the tradition of the elders. And then... He says to them, so they've used the word tradition. They said, we're not, they're not walking according to what's been given to us, what's been handed down to us. And he says to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. Okay, so the commandment, the law of God, that's the good thing. In order to establish your tradition. Now, this is the great um, irony here. Tradition, the word for tradition can mean both tradition or betrayal. So when Jesus is handed over to the, uh, the leaders and the authorities, he is traditioned over to them. So if you read it that way, I mean, it, you, it's, it's got an even sharper edge. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your betrayal, right? Um, thus making void, verse 13, the word of God by your betrayal what you've handed down, okay? So here's the, here's the key question, though. How do their traditions, because not all, I mean, traditions, traditions can be a good thing, right? Things that are handed down can be a good thing. They're not, just, tradition on its own is neutral, right? So what makes their traditions bad? Why do they, how do they nullify the command of God? But they always say, um, uh, we are um, after Moses. Okay, that's right. So here they claim authority for their traditions. So their traditions, they say, come from Moses. Now we have an interesting question about how to regard Moses. Jesus later says, um, when they throw at him their laws about divorce from Moses, he says to them, they say, why did, why did Moses permit it under these various circumstances? All you got to do is write a certificate. And he says to them, it was because of your hardness of heart that Moses gave you these laws. Right? So the laws were actually the, uh, were, were, uh, amplified, more, more uh, specific, or applied to specific situations because you had a specific need. And Moses was given the authority to... Deal with your hardness of heart. But now, I mean, he comes along and Jesus says, what does he say about divorce in those situations? He says, he talks about adultery, um, which starts in the heart, right? So this gets you at the, at the key uh, problem with the Pharisees and their traditions. Their traditions are concerned with external things, right? And Jesus talks about this, right? It's not what goes into a man. It's not the stuff that is outside of you that defiles you, but it's, What's in your heart? And he has a pretty low appraisal of the human heart, right? What comes out of the heart? 
all those things, right? Just about every bad thing you can think of, right? I, I, and the look on Alec McCowan's face, I, th- I think, is what, what, what kind of a look did he have when he was listing those, those words? It wasn't just like, I mean, so sometimes when we read, for instance, Paul's epistles and he has like this laundry list of things, places you might go wrong, right? Um, we, we kind of speed through it. Like, okay, we're just lumping all kinds of sins together. We're just kind of covering our bases. But when he reads it, he read them slowly and deliberately. What was the look on his face? Can you describe it? Intense. Okay. Yeah, he was thinking, he was thinking about them individually. Donna, what'd you say? Disgust. disgust. Okay. Anybody else think disgust? Is that a good description? Did you see any uh, disappointment? I thought, I, I was thinking, I, I, I saw disappointment and almost a little bit of, um, almost a little bit of sorrow. Like, this is not what I meant for your hearts to be for, right? This is not what, this is not what hearts are supposed to do. Okay, so the, the Pharisees in their traditions are concerned about external things. Um, and in our version of the text here, it's, it's a bit more descriptive than, what he, than the King James Version. There are some manuscripts that contain a few more words, and they're included here. Verse 4, uh, verses 3 and 4, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, which is, if anything, supposed to be like this bit of sarcasm, right? They even go and they baptize their, their couches, their dining couches. What good does that do them, right? So here's the key question. Why do they do all of those things? Why do they think those things are good? Why do they think the externals matter so much? Okay, so it, it does empower them. It certainly does. Because if you are, if you are um, doing visible things that sets you apart from other people, and uh, you have an in-group and an out-group now because you've got this boundary marker. I'm doing these things. You're not doing these, those th- the things that we're doing. And I'm the authority. Boom, you've got all the power, right? But for today, it's hygiene. Yeah, well, that's true. Yes. Okay. So a lot of this, a lot of Moses. This is important to know. For a lot of Moses' laws, the reasons are very simple. It's just good, good hygiene to do what Moses says, like wash your hands. Okay, wash your hands. Um, but it doesn't make you more favored in God's eyes to wash your hands. Marilyn. Well, is this a ceremonial thing? They make a big deal about how they wash and all that. I wonder. Yeah. I mean, or is it just a normal? We wash before we eat too. Right. Not a ceremony. It's for the kids. Get it done as quick as you can. That's that's yes, very unceremonious for the sake of my kids. Um, yeah, no, that's right. So this this falls into a lot of this falls into the category of ceremonial law. We have to. I mean, being it's easy to it's easy to look at the Old Testament. And say um, here we have we we can clearly delineate between moral law laws that still apply today, and ceremonial law, law that was only valid for the people of Israel. That's a useful thing to do at times, but the more important question to ask is, what are the ceremonial laws for? Right? It's not just arbitrary. It's not just God saying, here, I've got some things I want you to do just because. Carol, what were you going to say? Um, not an answer to what the ceremonial laws were for, but I'm just thinking of one reason why you 
do them is this is evidence of who I am inside. Right. Whether or not you are like that inside. See, I'm doing this. That's right. I'm doing this and I'm doing this. Maybe in this day and age we might say work righteousness. Sure. Here's a, here's a very simple example. Going to church, right? Going to church can appear, can make you appear to be to like you have a clean heart, right? People use it that way all the time. I'm a church-going person. Um, and even sort of minimally a church-going person, that, that's, a, that's a mark, right? Um, an external thing. Now, what's, we always have to be careful, though, because um, the, the common objection is, well, people going to church, they're all hypocrites because they, none of them have pure hearts. I know what church people are like, right? Um, and so the, obviously going to church doesn't have, bear any real relationship to what's going on inside people's hearts. Let's forget about it. Clearly not true, right? In fact, um, at the end of this discussion is to say to you that the way that you get uh, a good heart is through the ex- some of the external things, the external things that Jesus gives to you, right? Baptism and the sacrament and his word coming into your ears, right? Um, but the, but the, the key thing to observe is that the Pharisees are interested in what's going on in the outside. Jesus is interested in what's going on in your heart. And the, notion about, the note about power is really important. The reason why the Pharisees are so excited about external things is because it's something they can actually control. Like it's something you can actually do. Washing your hands, you know, my children's behavior notwithstanding, is actually something you can do. You can say, I'm going to wash my hands before I eat every day. And you, I mean, if you set your mind to it, if you establish a discipline of it, you can do it. But what you cannot do to yourself is make yourself love washing your hands, right? You can't, you can't change the way you feel about washing your hands. This is a, a critical thing to know about humanity. Um, that, and, and just think about it. Like, I mean, one, one way to, so there are two ways we can talk about it, two ways that I think are really evident. You can't make yourself love something. You can't decide, I'm going to love this thing, this person. You can't decide that. You can decide to behave in a way that, that you would behave if you loved, wash, say, washing your hands, right? Um, you also can't decide to believe something. Like, you can't go outside and say, today I want to believe that the sky is purple. You can't, you can't change your heart, on, you know, which is convicted that the sky is blue because of the evidence that you see, right? You can't change your heart. Um, and that's why the Pharisees are so interested in other things, because anytime you try to change your heart, you're going to fail. It's a really disappointing thing to try and do. You can't make your heart better. And when you try to change your heart and love uh, more properly or more thoroughly, you're always going to find that you love more poorly than you thought you did, right? As soon as you take a look into your heart, you see all of those things that Jesus describes. And so the externals are great, right? Because you can control them. You can make decisions about them. You can get them right. Um, and that's, that's the way they nullify the commandment of God, right? So the, the Pharisees are saying to everybody and to Jesus, we are the most religious people around, right? We are the rigorists. We take this really seriously. We take all of this business more seriously than anybody. We are the best Jews around. And Jesus 
doesn't say to them what is so often assumed, don't take things so seriously, right? He doesn't say, don't try so hard. He says, you need to take it way more seriously than you do. I, you think that you've got it locked down because you can wash your hands. No big deal, right? How about your heart? When was the last time you washed your heart, right? Um, Jesus, is the, Jesus is the one who takes things more seriously. I mean, we've, you've heard this before. Um, the Pharisees think they're more religious than Jesus, right? Which is a bad idea. To, as soon as you find yourself being more religious than Jesus or think that you're more religious than Jesus, you're, you're on the wrong path. Does that make sense? I mean, this is critical... Um, and then, it's, and then it's a, it's, becomes really visible in the next story. I want to get to the story of the Syrophoenician woman. Um, because just like when Jesus went to the region of the Gadarenes and healed the demoniac, you know, there were all, the, all these signs that he was in Gentile territory, the last person that he should be spending time with. Um, he doesn't, he's not interested first about the externals. Although, in this story, it seems like he is, Right? So the woman comes up to him. Go ahead, Krista. And I just only thought, you know, until today, the, um, the very, very strong uh, Jews have just the same, that they are just going, uh, what's the law is. Right. And, and what's, what's, what's important to note is that that's not just like a uniquely Jewish tendency. This is a, a human tendency. We are all inclined to to cling to the things we can do. And in doing them, to say that we've, we've done the most important thing. We've satisfied God, right? Um, that's, all, that's everybody's inclination. Uh, we, we all have this, uh, the, we, it's in Latin, we, it's called the opinio legis, the opinion of the law, the inclination towards, um, towards making our own laws and then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You make your own laws and then you keep them. What good does that do you, right? Take a look. Think, think now about the Syrophoenician woman. She comes to Jesus and, of course, this, you know this story and it's so surprising. And I, it, it's, to me, it's surprising every time I read it. What is, what's so striking about this story? Okay, so, yeah, that's right. She is, a, she is the epitome of faith, right? Um, even crumbs are good enough for me. But before that, it, what's disturbing? This is an obvious question, I know. I, I shouldn't ask such. Because nobody wants to, yeah. He just seems to uh, not even ignore her, just to That's shun her. That's right. That's right. Who is this? This isn't the Jesus I that's right. This isn't the Jesus I know. In another gospel, I don't remember whether it's Matthew or Luke, she comes to him, and, and at first, he ignores her. And then he, then he rebukes her, you know, dismisses her. I mean, and so, so the, the uh, character of Jesus, again, is to see need and to have compassion. Here, he sees need, and what does, what does he have? Appears to be no compassion. No compassion, right? All of a sudden, he's acting just like the Pharisees. You un- I mean, what, what, is, what does he mean by, it's not good to give the children's food to the dogs? It means you're unclean, right? In all the external ways that are most visible to everybody, you are not one of us, right? Um, boy, that's surprising. <laughs> uh, and, I mean, this is uh, it's a startling thing to realize that Jesus 
has it within himself to act like this. Because then you start to wonder, what about all the times that I have need and I bring it to Jesus and his answer to me is, this isn't for you, right? My goodness is not for you. Carol? Is he saying that and doing what he did, what he did because of her or because of the disciples that he's still trying to... I think it's, I certainly think it's, I think it's both, right? He's not, he's not going to use her just as a, a, a object lesson for the disciples, right? Because in the end, he, he, in the end, he does show her compassion, right? He does show her compassion. What has he evoked in the process? Uh, he, in, in resisting her. He brings out her, her, her faith. Yeah, he brings out her faith. She, he makes her insist that he be the Jesus she thought he would be. That he be the Jesus she, she knew all about, right? Somebody who sees and has compassion. Holly. Um, she's not only unclean on the outside to everybody, but the, the girl with the unclean spirit is also unclean on the inside. That's right. So it's, a, it's a double cleansing, like we just talked about with Pharisees. So. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and it points to the fact that what Jesus is after is hearts, right? He doesn't say to her, um, go wash up first, right? It, and, that's, and that'll solve your problems. Um, he's actually interested in what's going on in her heart. And she reveals her heart in her response to Jesus, right? So her response to Jesus is one of this pure faith. Um, I only need a little bit. I only need a little bit of you, and, and everything's going to be fine. Um, that is pretty startling. It's exemplary. And the fact that th- the way that he responds to her, the way that he heals her daughter, uh, is, is, is an example that you should always hold before your eyes, right? Because it's not always going to go uh, in the order. I mean, this is, again, the, king, the mystery of the kingdom of God. It's not going to happen the way you think it should. So, you know Jesus is compassionate and that he see, when he sees your need, he, he can't help but respond. But you also now know that sometimes the best thing for you, sometimes your bigger, your bigger need is not actually the need that you bring to Jesus, but that your heart be strengthened in, your, in, its, in its confession, in its expression of faith. Sometimes what you need is, uh, is to insist more fervently. And in insisting more fervently, uh, your faith is strengthened, right? You're, you cling to Jesus all the more. Um, so again, I mean, that's a, 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 just a crucial thing to always carry in the front of your minds. I mean, it's, it's really easy when things go well to, to lose sight of, the, uh, of how Jesus cares for us. It's easy to think that everything going well is Jesus caring for me. When in fact, sometimes, especially when things are going poorly, it's our interaction with Jesus that is, that is his, his biggest help to us, his most evident compassion. Krista. Um, I just was thinking, if we have faith like a mustard seed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's compared to the cross. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and in some sense, you know, she understands the mystery of the loaves better than the disciples, right? Because what was left over after Jesus fed the 5,000? Twelve baskets of crumbs, right? So the children had been fed first. Right? The Israelites had all been fed first. And she knows, perhaps, that there was a lot left over. Right? 
that even the crumbs are more than sufficient, right? That there's more than enough even among the crumbs to feed me. Okay? Do you have any questions about that? Mary. This is very difficult because there's there's like three different things going on. So like if I don't it, so he's trying to strengthen my faith. Okay, so I don't have enough faith, so now he's trying to so so it's my fault that something's not happening, or I'm asking the wrong thing. Like he's got something else, so it's the you know, he'll give you what you want or something better. Uh -huh. So like so you really never know what what's going on that's right <laughs> you know but I, I just feel like you can fall into like a, well this isn't happening i mean when you think that way well this is something's not happening for me because i'm not praying hard enough or i'm not i don't have enough faith or right right which is not where you want to be either because then it's then it's on me right like i can't muster up enough faith for this to happen yeah but even so but even that realization even thinking to yourself I, I can't muster enough faith to make this happen. Um, that is, it's not always an unhelpful thing to realize about yourself, right? Not that it, should, it shouldn't inspire you to try and muster up more faith, but just like you realize that you can't decide to love something, you, know, you, you realize that um, the faith has to come from outside of you. It has to be given to you. Um, in which... I was struggling with that too because, because part of it is discipline. Like, just doing the discipline of yeah. the thing, you know, I think you can grow to, I don't know, love is a, love is a difficult, you may not grow to love it. Right. But, but the discipline of it can, is good for you. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. And this is, this is the different, I, I should make this very clear. Um, there's a difference between the heart that you're born with and the heart that you, that is, that is made alive by Jesus, right? So by nature, you can't choose to love anything, right? But what does Jesus do for you? He actually takes your cold, dead, stony heart and starts it beating again, right? Making it, making it open to loving the things that he would have you love. And the way that he gets you to love the things that he wants you to love is through discipline, right? So he, gives, so he says, you've got to practice loving these things, and I promise that in doing these things, in, um, in, receiving, my in receiving my love, your love will, will grow. So you're doing the things that he's going to use to give you love, right? You're doing the things that he's going to use to strengthen your faith, right? It's, the, again, the paradox. I think about this often with the Lord's Supper. We pray at the end of the Lord's Supper, of course, that it would strengthen our faith. But the prerequisite for going to the Lord's Supper is that you have faith, right? Same thing with baptism. In order to, uh, be, uh, to be washed, you need to believe these words that you've been washed. And it happens all at once because Jesus does it to you from the, from the get-go, right? Um, it is just the most frustrating thing in the world, Right? <laughs> Because, because all along the way, you realize again and again how you are not master of the situation, right? Um, which is also can be, I mean, it can be liberating to know that uh, you just got to do what's been given to you. And in, in spite of the fact that um, it's, it's frustrating and it's not apparent that it's doing anything, um, then the reason you do it is because of the promise. Because it's got a promise attached to it. Aaron. Whoa. 
So, so here's. Or, or do those things like just show up to church, even though I'm like, I don't know if God's going to fix anything. Yeah, yeah. So this is, I mean, this is a, uh, one of the hardest things. Again, that there is no apparent difference between your heart and the heart of the Pharisees. There is no apparent difference, right? You can't see it, and if, and it's at the times that you can't see it that really you're you're oppressed. Um. And, and that's actually, you know, that's part of the life of a Christian. We call it the, I mean, it's, it's one of the crosses that you have to bear as a Christian is that you don't get to, you don't, you're not perfected in this life. You do, you get to see now and again these glimmers. Um, but here's the critical thing. I mean, the fact that, the fact that you're concerned about it or the fact that you've been moved to, want to be faithful, right? That doesn't happen because of anything you've done, right? That happens to you. Um, and it, I mean, it's easy, to, it's easy to sort of get into this really sort of meta conversation about love and say, well, I'm not going to be able to love, but at least I want to love, right? Uh, or, you know, I, can't, I want to want to love, right? I, um, how, many far, how many steps removed do I have to be before I'm actually outside, right? It, it doesn't, it do, it's not like that. Right? And here's, here's why. Because it's not up to you and your conversation, your own internal dialogue. Right? Being a Christian is not a solitary venture. And if it were, it would be way too hard for any of us. Right? So this, the reason why you have pastors and people who are uh, brothers and sisters with you is so that you have somebody else who can say it to you. Right? So, you don't, so I can say of you, Aaron, you are baptized. I, you know, your heart doesn't always look like a Christian heart. Sometimes it looks pretty rotten. But I know what Jesus did to you, so it's going to work out. You know? Um, and it's, it's having somebody say that to you, which, makes, which solves for the dilemma of having to say it for yourself. You can't convince yourself of it. Right? Jan. I guess there's an, I see this as another way of looking at this story. If, if you go back to 6, it started with Jesus' rejection in Nazareth, and then this chapter ended with his acceptance in Gennesaret, which is not Jewish territory. Now we have Jesus up in Tyre and Sidon, which is, and you get the impression that this happened like instantly. Mm-hmm. Now, now, this is as far as walking from here to the lakefront. Right. At least, at a minimum. They didn't hop in their Mercedes and do this. 
This is over a day's journey, because 20 miles was approximately a day's journey back in those days, and then you really had to keep going. Yeah. Um, here we have what we've been determining as a crumb of faith. I see Jesus once again reaching out to the Gentile world and saying, we who think we are the church should not determine who can come in because we, you know, because of what they say or do. We just need to accept. And I see that's what he was teaching his disciples. The fact that he was up in Tyre and Sidon, Syrophoenician, is not Jewish again. Right. Once again, we are out in the Gentile world, and Jesus shows his love by healing the daughter. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's double-edged, right? So, this, this miracle in every aspect, just like the healing of the, the demon-possessed fellow, um, is so startling, so surprising, upsets the apple cart for everything Jewish, right? I mean, especially in contrast with the, I mean, this woman's not even thinking about washing her hands before she eats, right? It's not even on the radar. Um, and Jesus is coming to her and healing her. But, and packed, what's beautiful about this story is that packed into that story then is this, this conversation that really just blows any discussion of borders or boundaries or who's in and who's out. It blows it out of the water because he's really just after her heart, right? Here, so we, we think that he's on this sort of, the Jews think that he's on this sort of geopolitical rampage, right? He's just trashing borders and people are, um, you know, all questions of cleanliness and purity are out the window. And then all of a sudden we're just, we're focused in, we're zoomed in so close. And here's this conversation with a person just with a heart just like you and me, right? A heart that has absolutely no connection to these externals, these, these thing, other things that we've been fooling ourselves with. Um, the, a heart that needs something from Jesus and a Jesus who gives that heart exactly what it needs. Um, and the encouragement that if you insist on Jesus being who he says he is, he will be that, right? Sometimes he wants you to push a little harder. Um, and uh, when he invites you to do that, it's for your good, right? What else you got? Kathy. A while back, I went for a massage, and uh, she, like, really worked on my neck, really sore, and a couple days later, I got out of bed, and the floor just came up, and I went down, and I'm lying there, and this was, like, on top of other physical things that were a problem for me, and I'm lying on the now what? <laughs> Why is this happening to me? And of course, the next day I Googled it. And, uh, sometimes when you mash on your neck real hard, these little crystal things go floating past your inner ear, and it's called ear rocks, and it causes you to have vertigo. 
And uh, so I was thinking just now that, you know, we get a heart of flesh, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have all these hard bits in it. Right. And so it takes the Lord just massaging it and, and working it working it out, and the bits are going to have to come out one yep. way or the other. And so often we're just going to lie there and think, why is this happening to me? Why does this keep the same hard bits keep coming out, but it's just that working out of it, I guess, I think. Yeah, so this Sunday... Is the is John chapter fifteen? I am the vine, you are the branches, right? Which from which we get this really comforting notion. Jesus says, "Abide in me," right? You can't do anything apart from me. Abide in me, but in the packed in the middle of that, this is the crucial thing. So massaging massaging out the rocky bits is one is one way to look at it. But I think actually it's it's helpful to carry a more sort of more violent metaphor in our minds, which is John 15, right? So in the first place, he says, the unfruitful, I'm the vine. If you're an unfruitful branch, I'm going to lop you off and throw you into the fire, okay? Which is a harrowing thing to consider. But then he says, you are not unfruitful branches, right? You don't get, you don't, you might not be able to observe your, the fruit. Um, but I'm here, I, your pastor, am here to tell you that you're bearing fruit, because of your baptism in the first place. And if, we want, if you want to go through the list, I can tell you all kinds of other fruit that you're bearing. Right? That's a longer conversation for us to have individually. Okay? But here's the key. Although, even though you're, you're spared from getting lopped off like an unfruitful branch, he's going to prune you. Okay? And which calls to mind this unbearable experience for me of planting strawberries where you're supposed to plant them the first year and you're supposed to take off all of the blossoms the first year, which makes me want to cry, right? Because <laughs> all I want is to have some strawberries, right? Um, and and, and the, the fact is I don't have the, the foresight to know that this is going to be the best thing for those strawberries, right? And that the fruit's going to be better and, and even different than I thought it would be. And that the plants are actually going to survive now because I've pruned them, right? Same thing goes with a grapevine. And the grapevine is a great image because um, only when you train it, when you keep it from being unruly, from going every which way. I mean, you might have this sort of like purist, naturalist uh, kind of a mindset about it. I, the best thing is for it to just let's let it do what it wants to do and it's going to bear the most fruit. Wrong, right? It's corrupted by sin too, right? So if, if you train it, if you lead it to the, to the wire and you... Um, you make sure that you trim off the, 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 the stems that are not going to be able to support the grapes, right? And you limit the number so that it can produce the, the hardiest, healthiest grapes. You're actually doing what's good for that, that, uh, that vine. Um, all along, you're walking up with a shears, and you're lopping off something that looks like it's pretty healthy, right? I mean, this is... So apply that to your life, and think about all of the things that you think are the most fruitful, healthiest, most beautiful blossoms that you've got. And then just say to yourself, well, this might not be what Jesus wants me to, this might not be the blossom that Jesus wants to bear fruit, right? Um, And thank God that he's going to do it anyway, even though you don't want it, right? Okay. Now you know what I'm going to preach about on Sunday. (laughs) But you should come anyway because it's a good discipline, all right? What else you got? We should wrap this up. Do you have anything else? Tina. 
was just saying, Bob, I'll explain this very well, but it's it's interesting how when Jesus pushes her a little bit, she goes back to what Jesus has done and yes. he did. Yeah. And I think that's just a great example for us when we're asking God and Jesus, you know, when we're asking for things in prayer or whatever, yeah. just to remember already who he is yeah. and ask that way, not just from our own. That's absolutely right. That is the model of of the Psalms. So you, you ever, you ever, have you ever wondered to yourself when, when the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul, right? What does that mean to bless the Lord? We might think, you might say to yourself, well, it means, well, what, what, is it, what do you think it means? What are the possibilities? Bless the Lord. Praise. Praise. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. God, you are so great, right? Um, you're a magnificent God. But the psalmist, I, I take, he gives more specific. David takes us he shows us exactly what it means. We don't just praise God for being some sort of uh, nebulous, great guy out there, some ideal good, some, something for us to just sort of ponder how nice it is. But here's how you are so good, right? So I will bless the Lord at all times, and that means recounting his deeds, right? I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord is... Uh, is a crucial verse um, from one of Luther's favorite psalms. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. In reciting the things that God has done for us, um, we bless his name and we give ourselves the confidence, the faith to trust that he's going to do what he has promised um, to do. That is absolutely how you should pray. And this is why when we pray the collects in church, the prayers of the church, You'll notice we always, na- we always say of God, right? I mean, and we could go on and on, but we have, you know, 59 and a half minutes. So, you, great, oh, great physician, right? Which, when you hear that, you should think about all of the healing that Jesus does, right? Has done. Um, and, and, and attach that memory, that thought, to his promise of future healing. Okay? He also heals the deaf and dumb fellow. But, that's for another time. Um, okay, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, come back next week.